0: For the word of the Lord. I have to say at the outset that uh, of the many remembrances and celebrations that we have throughout our church year, I have a, a real love of Christ the King that we celebrate and focus on today. It is the last Sunday of our liturgical cycle, our church year, and next Sunday is Advent and as we lead into a new cycle, Christ the King is sort of the link that holds the two together and gives us that continuing reality. And we see some glimpses of truths that are so deep and wondrous It leaves us with a sense of we cannot comprehend the depth of what we are um, reflecting upon. Christ the King is a focus on the sovereignty of Christ. It's not that Christ will be enthroned as king at the end of time when he returns. Christ has always been sovereign and that sovereignty has always been exercised within the purposes of God. Nor is it that in some way we've been instructed to look at earthly kings and then say, oh, Christ is a bit like these earthly kings. It's the complete opposite of that. Jesus embodied and continues to exercise how power and authority is used at its very best in the service and well-being and the sustaining of others. Regardless of our views on whether we are Republicans or Monarchists and all those different types of models of how communities and uh, nation states can exercise um, responsible leadership, and that's been a perennial question right from Greek and Roman times through to the present day, it isn't so much the model of leadership but the attitude of leadership. And I think it was recognised with the, uh, the death of Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth that she was a model of someone who saw her uh, sovereignty as a responsibility that called upon her whole being, her whole life, and the focus was on how that could be used for the common good, for the well-being of others. So what we see in Christ the King is an example, an attitude, the ultimate example of what true exercise of power and sovereignty can and should look like. But it does take us into the, the depths of truths that we cannot fully or even begin to fully comprehend. I was thinking about how to describe the enormity of the truth that we are just touching on this morning. And the image came to me of, uh, if you go through Tasmore Park, you see there's the toddler's ball a nice little new extension to the toddler's pool and you can put your feet in and you can get brave and you can go up to your knees in the toddler's pool. And as we might go and uh, experience more uh, confidence in swimming, perhaps have swimming lessons and so on, we can go into pools and uh, for those of us who can remember perhaps of going out of our depth for the first time and you go for a little moment out of our depth and come back and uh, touch ground again, I'm not sure if you ever had the experience of trying to swim in a diving pool. You know, the ones that go down three or four metres, it's very disconcerting. And I certainly wouldn't want to be staying in a diving pool for very long as you go into the the depths below it. Even those experiences are nothing compared to the reality of the ocean depths. If you've been snorkelling, as I did once upon a time, and you go over a reef and suddenly discover an absolute depth that you can't see the bottom. It's uh, uh, an incredible experience and not one that you would want to stay in for overly long. Then we think about this this whole reality around our planet of the depths of water that beyond no one has ever actually been down to. But it's a constant reality. It is there. It's a key part of our our ecosystem, our existence, even though we cannot comprehend the depths and the extent of the waters that are all around us. The Bible uses these images to say that this is the reality of God. God's, uh, ex- the reality of God is just mind-blowing. We cannot even comprehend it, but we just glimpse it. And in Christ the King we glimpse something of that reality. Another way of expressing it is a bit like, if you imagine the story of the Bible was a giant jigsaw puzzle. There's pieces of the puzzle in all different books of the Bible, different stories and episodes, and uh, we bring those various bits and pieces together and suddenly realise they come together in the person of Jesus. And what we see in the person of Jesus, we're told, is a reflection on that great reality. So for me, Christ the King is that day in which we bring together all those different storylines as they lead and they culminate in the person of Jesus, his entry into the world, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his glory, that we just know that we are in the presence of someone, a power that is truly awesome. So I'm rather enthusiastic about Christ the King because it reminds us of the uniqueness of Jesus. Jesus was and is uniquely placed to do the work that he has done. Jesus stands head and shoulders above anyone else in all of history. And we come before his feet, not just in awe and in fear, but to know that this powerful presence of God loves us and knows us intimately and personally. As Fiona reminded me this morning, the same Christ is the one who speaks to John at the end of his bed and speaks to him in his dreams. So it is a comforting image, even though it is one that leaves us with a sense of, of uh just how small and how wondrous it is. When Jesus entered the world, there were two different perceptions of him. There were those who saw him and mocked and said, how can this be a king? How can this be someone who is powerful and worthy? He has no army, he has no palace, doesn't look like a very important person to us. And the Gospel reading is chosen to reflect those two different ways of perceiving who Jesus is. So we have this sign which was erected not as a sign of honour, but as a sign of irony, almost a parody. So this is the King of the Jews hanging here on a cross, crushed by the Roman power and authority. Yet on that same cross, we had surrounded by the two... Criminals on either side. One saw Jesus through the eyes of the world and that scathing, bitter humour. But the other saw someone else. The other saw in Jesus a power and someone who was able to do more than anyone else was able to do. And the words that that are so rich and powerful, even in that moment upon the cross where Jesus would, of all people, be able to say, look, I'm rather busy at the moment. (laughs) Speaking to the other criminal and saying, today I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. So it's those two different perceptions that we want to dwell on this morning. And in particular, we're going to look at the wonderful passage in Colossians chapter 1. It is the deep end of the pool when it comes to theological passages. We cannot... Really understand the depth and the richness that goes with it. One of my um, interests, passing interests, is uh, artistic work based on the theme of what's Christus Rex, Christ the King. It's a, a sort of a genre of art, both in terms of stained glass windows and in um, sculptures, or in this case, a combination of both. I was actually looking at our stained glass window here, which is a, a picture of the ascended Christ which is close to Christ the King, <clears throat> but um, traditionally Christ the King would actually have a, a crown upon the head of the, of the Christ image. This is one based from a uh, a Louver and University in Indiana, and I just love the complexity of it. You glimpse it, but you can't take in the picture <laughs> in its wholeness. You can look at different parts of it and know that it, when it, they're all drawn together it takes us into something that is vibrant and real and energetic and rich, but it still leaves us with a sense of, I'm still trying to grasp it as, it as we go. And that's sort of like what this passage that we look at. We have all these different themes, these different notions. The words in themselves aren't that challenging, but the way in which they have been woven together in this wonderful, what's regarded as a, an early creedal statement that Paul echoes, probably something that the early church would say together when they gathered. Paul introduces it, and you might have noticed that our reading comes in halfway through a long sentence in verse 12, so Bruce picked it up, that <clears throat> we, we jump in halfway through this sentence because each phrase deserves to have much more reflection But we want to step back and look at the big picture. He has delivered us, that is God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness, all that is wrong and messy and evil and corrupt and destructive and just awful in the world. We have been delivered from and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins, and this is just the introduction. <laughs> as we make that movement, He—that is Christ—is the image of the invisible God. God is totally beyond our comprehension, our sight. We can see something of the, the footprint of God. We can see something of the activity of God, but the purest understanding of what is—who is this God—that we worship and we trust and we reach out to and we pray to the clearest picture we get of god is the person of jesus his life his attitude his character his teaching his mission his work and service and his resurrection and ascension he is the image of the invisible god That is why I, and I'm sure we all, are Christians. That is to say, we don't just believe in some vague God who's out there at a distance. We believe in a God who has entered this world in the person of Jesus. And that has changed everything. And he is the one that we glimpse and see and trust and grow ever closer towards as we seek to follow. Paul describes that in Christ he has the fullness of a deity, the fullness of God. This is from chapter 2, as also Paul elaborates on this theme. That everything that we can see and know of God is actually is, is in Christ, in his bodily form. And we've been given that fullness, we've been drawn into that fullness when we enter into that relationship with Christ. In the book of Revelation, we also have some wonderful images to help us. Not to be pressed too literally, but there's a drama in the book of Revelation where the reality of life and our flaws as churches is revealed in the seven churches of Asia that are the prism through which the book of Revelation is written. And somewhere across those seven churches and their checklists of these things you do well and these things you need to attend to are not good. It's a report card across those seven churches and it's not hard to find our church somewhere in that report card these things are good these things are not and then the drama moves to the doors of heaven being opened a glimpse into this greater heaven reality chapter 4 revelation and what we see through these doors is something that is wondrous but a drama unfolds as the glory of heaven is just glimpsed the question is asked who is worthy to open the scroll that unlocks all these truths. It's a great dramatic moment. And they look around the world and saying, is no one here worthy to open the scroll that unlocks the truth of the future, of all that lies ahead? Who is worthy? Then they looked and there was a lion, the lamb, the lion of Judah. And the lion of Judah then transforms into a lamb. And not just a lamb, but a slain lamb another image for Christ, of Christ upon the cross, and said he is the one who alone is worthy to unlock the fullness of this kingdom. So we have again just imagery to help us understand something, that the power we're talking about is not like human power or even power of the animal kingdom, but it is a power that is revealed in the unbelievable work of Jesus. That is why he alone qualifies in that space, so Paul picks up the image, and this is what was probably an early creed. the sun is the image of the invisible God, and then Paul continues, is the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, like the depths of the sea, whether thrones and powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You might have noticed from time to time, but I enjoy some amateur gardening. I enjoy being in the garden, continue to learn as we go, and uh, I just find it just grounds me so well, and it's uh, uh, sort of part of that balance. One of the things I've come to learn about gardening is the importance of a taproot. Taproots, whether it's a great tree or whether it's a shrub or whether it's some plants or whether it's a lot of uh, ground cover growth, it can look as though it covers a whole bank until you realise that that whole bank of of, uh, ground cover comes back to one taproot. And if that taproot goes deeply, it sustains and contributes and holds together that whole ecosystem. That came to my mind when I was reflecting on this passage, how in him all things hold together. It's almost like saying that Christ is the taproot for life itself. Everything comes out of his, the depth and the richness, that if we can grow in and out and through that taproot, then we are tapping into something that is incredibly powerful and that is our faith and our trust and our commitment to Jesus Christ. So Paul continues, all things have been created through him and for him. As I said before, he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. It is the source of life, of energy, that is what we experience, this great mystery. And through him, through this incredible, powerful, extensive reality of God in Christ, through him God has reconciled everything to himself and made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of the blood of the cross, Christ's blood on the cross. And that is where we, as we recognize the awesome otherness of God, suddenly draws into our own sphere, our own existence. And this God knows me by name. And this God offers me in the bread and the wine that our body and soul will be preserved to everlasting life. I have a place at his table. I have a place in his heavenly home. The God who is so rich in love and compassion and mercy and so incredibly patient with us. That is why Christ the King leads us to worship and thankfulness. And this Christ, Paul hasn't finished, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. That He is those who have been raised and will take with him all those who have died with their faith and trust in the Lord are always forever in his company, in his presence. So it draws us back to this enormity of a a passage that we just sort of get, we sort of glimpse, but leaves us with a sense of being drawn into the presence of someone who is not only so much bigger than us, but whose depth of love and compassion and of grace is a welcoming embrace around us. What a terrific way to conclude our church year.